Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. Hey, Jeff, I took a really interesting picture of my office. I sent it to you earlier. Did you have a look at it? Hang on. A, a really interesting picture of your office. We're really delving into some uh, some thrilling <laughs> content here. Yes, you did send this to me. But for the people who haven't okay. seen this yet, why would you take an interesting picture of your office? Uh, well, this is the result of my minimalization project of my office. I've gotten rid of a lot of clutter. Um, I put some new shelves up that are at the right of the picture, and this will be in the show notes. And I've reorganized a lot of things in my office to, to make as much space as possible. But I wanted to document this, and I wanted to try a feature that I had only used three times since I've had an iPhone, and that was taking a panorama. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You've only used this feature three times since you've had any iPhone, right? That's right. This is my fourth panorama. Okay. Wow. Well, I've never really felt the need to do it. Um, it it's Fair enough. I, well, the first panorama I ever did was my partner and I went to a town called Whitby um, on the northeast coast of England back in 2013. Um, Whitby's well known because it figures in the Dracula novel. This is the uh, port city where Dracula arrives on a cool. ship. So it's quite well known for that. And we were at a beach and she was out in the water. And I said, oh, this is nice. I'm going to try this panorama thing. And it came out really nice. But it's just a funny picture because you get that. That, ang that distortion in the angle. And in the one of my office, I mean, my office is square. It's not, you know, arced like this. And you can see that the walls, for instance, on the left and on the right, they look all curved, but they're obviously not curved. Right, right. That's just because we have spherical lenses. And, and But what's interesting is I think panoramas are a lot more common than they used to be, especially because it's a feature that's on so many, you know, millions and millions of phones that when I look at a picture like this, I don't even notice the distortion because my brain is accommodating for it. So, yes, I know it's distorted, but it also tells me, okay, this is a panorama. And what I'm looking for is the breadth and the width of the scene, which is really the whole point of making a panorama in the first place. Well, usually in a panorama, you're going to do it outdoors like this one of the beach and I did this in a square room. So the distortion looks stranger. Um, with the one of the beach, it almost looks like it almost looks like I was in a bay, and so the water came up in a curve. I'll, I'll include that in the show notes as well. Um, the horizon's flat, so you don't see any distortion there, and it just doesn't look as abnormal as one of an indoor um, space. But it, it certainly makes my office look a lot bigger than it is. Oh yeah, part of what's going on here especially with, with your office, your office is a small space, but also everything is very close. So as you move the camera, the relative distance between everything is going to be more exaggerated when it's closer to the lens versus if you're at the beach and you're looking off into infinity, you don't notice it as much because of just that, that fast distance. Yeah, good point. And, and I guess in a small space, it's almost kind of like a fisheye effect, isn't it? Exactly. One of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this is not only to showcase your very cool new office. Actually, no, that's the real reason. Come on, let's all be honest. <laughs> so when this topic came up, you and I were talking about it. It's not just the panorama feature that's on the iPhone. There are lots of different ways to do it. 
uh, the the iPhone features are really sort of a remarkable advance upon doing this before it used to be very, very time intensive. And there's also other ways of doing it with traditional cameras that are more intensive that can get better results. And that don't look so distorted, right? They don't look so distorted. And so we're going to talk about that as well. But first of all, let's start off with what I think most people are going to be familiar with, that pano feature on the iPhone. Yeah, I, I think it's really amazing. You slide the slider at the bottom of the window to pano, and then you get this line, and you press the shutter button, or you tap the shutter button, and you start moving, and it tells you if you're moving too fast. You have this line to show you if you're keeping it more or less level. And if you look at my office photo, you'll see a couple of spots where there are black bits um, on the top left and on the bottom right near the cabinets. So these are areas where I went too high or too low and the iPhone stitched things together, but there's basically no data for those little bits. But if you do it carefully, and I did three or four shots to, to get one that worked because sometimes um, it was finishing before I got to the end of the office. If you do it carefully and if you do it a few times and check your results, uh, it's it's frankly, it's quite amazing when you think about it. Yeah. Well, and what amazes me is what's going on behind the scenes. So in a traditional panorama, what you're doing is you're taking multiple shots on a tripod and overlaying them enough so that there's a little bit of overlap and then stitching them together. In a lot of traditional cameras, there's probably a panorama mode that will help you do that. It'll help you line up where the overlap is, but it's still up to you to stitch things together, or maybe the camera will do it in camera. And it's it's really hit or miss, depending on, on the camera. What's remarkable about the iPhone and, and smartphone approaches is it's doing everything live in real time. So it, it's not like you're, you're taking a shot, moving the camera, taking a shot, moving the camera, taking a shot. All you have to do is just keep the camera moving steadily. And in fact, because it has uh, the accelerometer, it even helps you if you're going too fast or too slow. It'll pop up a little message and says, slow down, for example, so that it can build this stitch as it goes along. And so even though you are moving, and you know we've talked in the past, like when you're taking photos, the last thing you want is camera movement, right? That's why we put things on tripods. But with the phone, it's intelligently grabbing the pixels and stitching them together and making sure everything looks sharp. And I've even seen cases where if somebody appears in the frame that it might just erase them out. There's, you know, machine learning and smarts and stuff going on. Ooh, machine learning. Machine learning. Impressive. Well, well, what I'm thinking is that it's kind of shooting a video and overlaying a bit of each frame as it moves. That's what it seems to me because it is so smooth. Um, in the iPhone panoramas, you don't see anything that suggests any stitching together as you go along. It's almost as if it's a frame thing. Right. As long as you follow the guides that it's giving you, which I also have to say in terms of uh, interface and in terms of user experience, it's also a fantastic interface because you don't have to know how to do any of this. It gives you little indications of whether you're being level, whether you're going too fast. Um, you can also do like crazy effects with it. So if you've never tried this, it's totally cheesy, but it's also totally fun. Start your panorama from the left. And I think it, it always goes left to right. If you tap the arrow, it changes direction so you can go right to left. Oh, gotcha. 
if Kirk and I were in front of some fantastic vista, one thing that I would do is I would have Kirk stand to the left of my frame and, you know, smile and look dashing against the sunset or whatever, and then start the pano and move that. Now, as you're moving the pano, have your subject run around behind you and then set up where the pano is going to end. And when you finish, you have basically two Kirks staring at each other, looking dashing. <laughs> it's goofy. It's silly. It's a super fun to easy do with trick. Family. Yeah. But it's fun. Like it, It's a totally cool thing to do. Uh, another thing people might not realize, you can do vertical panoramas with the iPhone. So if you're in a forest and you want a nice, big, tall, tall, tall shot, you can also just turn the camera onto its side go into the pano mode and just scroll up or basically shoot up. That's interesting. While you were talking, I checked the manual for the Fuji X-T3, which we both have, and it has a panorama mode. And according to the image, it looks pretty similar um, in the way the, the display, the interface is pretty similar. There's an arrow in the middle. You can change direction. You can do it on different angles. Um, and even before you shoot, you can set the size of the angle that you're going to use. Wow. So you may want to do a short panorama that's only 30 degrees or a long panorama that's 180 degrees. We will certainly try this before the podcast is published and perhaps throw a couple more panorama photos in the show notes. We're going to have lots of photos in the show notes because I know you've shot a lot of panoramas. You often display them on Facebook and not so much Instagram because Instagram isn't really designed for that shape of photo. What can be fun to do in Instagram it, because Instagram will have multiple uh, images in one post. You can take a panorama, slice it up into equal parts and have people swipe through it. Yeah. It's a hack, but sometimes it's fun. Well, a lot of this is fun because most people aren't going to shoot a panorama as a serious photo. Or if they do, it's going to be more likely a bunch of stills that they're going to stitch together someplace because they want to get a wider shot than what they can get normally. But if someone's just doing an off-the-cuff panorama, it's more for the fun than anything else, I would say. Don't you yeah, agree? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I mean, you know, the, the whole point is to to get that wide angle, to get that that scope of, you know, look at not just this little slice in front of me, but here is this epic vista. Here is this vast outdoor market. When you really need that bigger scope, that bigger sense, um, you know, especially for landscapes, but even when you're just traveling, you're, you're on vacation and you want to show that not only was I at this little beach, but over to the right was a, you know, this gorgeous lighthouse. And just to get all of that to make sure the scope comes through and sometimes that is just people who want to document that they were there. Yeah, because the composition of a panorama for. is relatively limited. You don't get the same relationship between objects because you're getting the distortion, you're getting the movement. So it is more to show, as you say, the vista, like the one uh, of my partner in the water on the beach. As you see it, you see the scope and basically you see the fact that there's absolutely no one on the beach except for us. Um, oh, wonderful. <laughs> but w what I was just thinking is um, I've mentioned that I go to the theater here in Stratford-upon-Avon quite often. And the Royal Shakespeare Company has two theaters and they both have what are called thrust stages. And what that means is that the audience is sitting on three sides of the stage. So next time I go, 
we generally have seats relatively near the front. So I'm going to get at the front and I'm going to aim my camera at the end of the seats on one side and do a panorama all the way around to the seats on the other side and see how that looks. I think that'll turn out really good. Another thing to point out is, and this isn't as indicated by the interface, but as you shoot a panorama with the iPhone, it will basically give you a starting point and then automatically stop once you've reached its its far limit. And that actually turns into a pretty long, narrow shot. You don't have to go all the way to the end where it wants. You can stop at any point. Because I find, unless you want something that's especially epic, or in your case, you wanted to make sure you captured the entire room from side to side, I think having that super narrow panorama tends to be a little diminished to me because then yeah. like, like I, I'm having to scan so far left and right. Now that may be different if I was making a panorama that was going to be printed on a huge long wall or something, but coming back to shooting with the iPhone, you can go halfway and stop and you still end up with a panorama. So you have some control over the composition. Always, you know, keep that in mind, even though you're trying to capture everything, but you want interesting composition. You're still making a photo. You're not just documenting the scene. And also when you shoot panoramas with the iPhone, they go automatically into a panoramas album. If you look in the sidebar of photos, media types, You'll see panoramas. The same thing is on the iPhone and iPad. They're sorted specifically. The iPhone or the iPad, they know that these are panorama photos. So we did an episode a while back about 360-degree photos um, ah, because yes. you had a gizmo. And a panorama is not that different. Now, just to follow up on what I said about the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, we're going to do this live. I'm going to give you a link in Skype, and you're going to look at this. This is a Google Street View view of the inside of the theater. So Crazy. this was done, I guess, with a 360, or was it done with a panorama? How does Google do that? You know, when they have those cars that go around that have cameras all around, they're essentially taking a lot of stills that stitch together. But when you're looking at a street view photo like this inside the theater that's doing yeah. the full 360, is it the same sort of thing that's individual photos that are stitched together? Because you don't get the kind of distortion that you do um, in the panoramas that I've shot with the iPhone. No, this was definitely taken with a 360-degree camera that has – I mean lo looking at the quality of it, it has either uh, two – lenses uh you know opposite each other or this could even be a camera that has like maybe four or eight lenses around that uh like like it's it's also basically making a panorama it's it's taking lots of images and stitching them together internally but not quite in the same way as a panorama i mean you know what when we say panorama, we're we're really thinking about like 180 degrees maximum, right? Or or less. Um, but one thing that this makes me think of is when you take a panorama, the iPhone saves a little bit of metadata that says, "Hey, this is a panorama," or "This was shot with a panorama mode." And depending on where you share it or view it, I think Google Photos will do this. Facebook will often do this. It will know that it's a panorama, and when people view it, they get that effect where they can drag side to side to get the full effect of it. So you actually, as it comes up in the timeline, 
it's a square or a regular aspect ratio. And then you can either move your device or you can drag to get the full scope of it. Yes, I have seen this on Facebook. Okay, let's take a little break. We'll come back and talk about more ways to shoot panoramas and actually more ways to shoot still photos and create panorama. Okay, so that was the easy way. One camera, move it around. And in fact, if you want to do really good panoramas, you should do it on a tripod. Even though the iPhone does level it out quite well, if you have it on a tripod, it's much easier. Um, You won't have to worry about keeping it straight. But what if you want to do panoramas now where you just take a bunch of still photos and you want to stitch them together? My thought is that in order to do this, you want the photos to at least overlap 50% each. So let's say you're taking a 90-degree viewpoint, right? You want to see something over 90 degrees. You want, say, a photo every 10 degrees. So you make sure you have enough points of overlap to get it to work. Is is that the basic idea? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, anywhere between like 30 to 50% of your shots should overlap. And basically, you're just giving the software more room to work so so that it can find things that match up and cleanly overlay them because we should also point out when you're doing it this way there are some advantages there are some disadvantages one is that you have to do it yourself and so you're going to take it into lightroom or photoshop or any number of other apps Apple Photos does not do this, but there are many others. The software is actually really good about finding these edges, finding the areas that overlap. I mean, just to visualize this, if you're taking a picture of a mountain range, it's going to be very easy to figure out where the peaks line up, and then it combines them there. So you want to make that easy. And because you have your camera on a tripod, and this is definitely much easier to do with a tripod. I've done handheld panoramas. In fact, I even did a a panorama when I was in a helicopter in Hawaii. Of course, that had to be handheld. And it was really sort of a, I'm just going to put it on burst mode and move left and right because, of course, the the helicopter's moving. And I'll have to go find the picture. In my mind, it turned out pretty well. I might go back into Lightroom and go, ooh, not so good, but maybe, you know, even even bad examples can be good examples. So you want as much as possible to make it easy for the software to to get this right. And it's a good point about using burst mode. Um, maybe the slow burst mode, but when you do it that way, you don't have to worry about pressing yourself as you move. You just press and hold and you just rotate yourself. I would say it depends. It, in, in that situation where... I was moving, I was in a moving vehicle. I wanted it to shoot as fast as possible because everything was going to be moving. But if you're going to do like a, a real deliberate panorama, think slow. So take a shot, move, 
take a single shot. So I think in that case, your um, your burst mode would get in the way. Because, okay, fair enough. Because you're actually not doing the iPhone thing, which I think might confuse people who start with panoramas on an iPhone because, of course, you just swish it left to right and there yeah. you go. But when you're making a panorama based out of individual shots, you want as little camera motion as possible. You want to be deliberate about each overlapping spot. Okay. And and one thing that I'm thinking is you need to be very careful about your exposure. You don't want your exposure to change from shot to shot, correct? That is extremely important, yes. So the keys to making a good panorama is you want a tripod, preferably with some sort of head that pans smoothly. You want the tripod to be very, very level. This is a case where when you're taking a regular shot, you can make the tripod mostly level, but you can also figure out how to make the camera level with the ball head. But here, as the camera is moving left to right, if your tripod's not level, you're going to end up with a panorama that sort of goes up and to the right, perhaps. So so you really want to make sure that that is level. But you also want your exposure to be very consistent because all these are going to get blended together. So, for example, if you're in a spot where you're going to have a much brighter area, uh, maybe that's where the sun is, expose for that so that you're not blowing out your highlights. And even though maybe your first few frames are going to be darker, that's something you can bring up in software versus if you start really nicely exposed and you move towards the sun or move toward the light source. And at that point, you know, you're completely blown out and the whole thing is, is ruined. Well, also you don't want anything like auto ISO or auto um, aperture. You right. need, those things need to be stable. You might want to allow the shutter speed to change. Um, but even no, you don't want anything to change. You, no, you no, want it, you want everything manual because you have to match the exposure from one photo to the next. Yes, and that also includes focus. So, figure out what you want to focus on, lock that focus, and then switch to manual because again, your camera is going to want to figure out what should be in focus. And if if your different shots have varying focus levels, it ruins the whole effect. So. Better to use a wider angle lens because you're going to get more depth of field. Better to use a smaller aperture for more depth of field. Um, and you're on a tripod so you can shoot slower shots anyway. So yes. you're not too worried about if your your aperture being smaller means you're not getting as much light. You don't need to be at a thousandth of a second. You can be at a quarter of a second and you'll be fine. Right. And also, and, and this is something that seems counterintuitive because here we are, we're shooting a nice wide panorama. And although this is not a hard and fast rule, it's often better to put your camera in a portrait orientation. So every shot is tall, and you're going to end up with more shots, but that also gives you some some height so that you don't just have like a super long noodle of a shot <laughs> that, that just keeps going on and on. Again, it depends on the content. It depends on what you're shooting. But in general, it's a lot it's a lot easier to do it that way. Okay, so what about if you have a drone? Can you do panoramas with a drone? You can, actually. My drone actually has a panorama mode, which I think is, it does an okay job. Strangely enough, the DJI software, when it takes a panorama, it 
takes a whole bunch of shots. And actually, it will do shots not just left to right, but also top to bottom. And yet, uh, they don't always stitch together very well. So if I have a drone and I am shooting a panorama, I will switch the camera into a portrait orientation. Not all drones will do this, but my my, uh, Mavic Pro does. And then just rotate the drone manually. So it'll take a shot and I turn it just a little bit, take a shot, turn it just a little bit. You still have to take into consideration that things are moving, but the drone is pretty solid in the air unless it's really windy and software can, can accommodate for all of that. One additional benefit to shooting panoramas that we haven't mentioned yet that I want to make sure we do is, yes, you get that wide expanse, but you also end up with a lot higher resolution. So if you're taking a picture of a landscape and you take one shot, that gives you, you know, 24 megapixels, depending on your camera. Okay. Well, if you combine seven or eight 24 megapixel shots, you end up with that much more resolution. And if you were to then say, instead of focusing on just like a a middle band, let's say there's something interesting top uh, and maybe also in the foreground, you can shoot a panorama of those sections too. And the software will stitch it together, even not just left to right, but top to bottom too. So you can end up with a very high resolution scene that gives you a lot more flexibility for cropping, gives you a lot more flexibility for zooming in. There's some people who do these like mega, mega panoramas that will have millions and millions and millions of pixels. You could zoom in and like see a person in a doorway in a high rise somewhere. That's kind of going crazy, but Especially if you have a lower resolution camera, making a panorama makes up for a lot of that. So what I'm thinking is you've got a scene in front of you and let's say you're going to shoot four photos from left to right and you Mm -hmm. shoot them. Then you lower your tripod, go back to the beginning, shoot another four photos. Then you raise it, shoot another four. So you've got 12 photos that will get stitched together and you're going to lose some stuff at the edges because of the angles but yes. you'll end up with a, a photo that's like six times the resolution of your camera that way. Yes, exactly. And let me throw in some more complication before we wrap up. The sort of fun and funny part of panoramas, you know, we started off very basic, take your iPhone and just sweep left to right and you got it. Panoramas can get very complex. And in fact, um, at some point, I think I would like to have a guest on to talk about advanced panoramas because as you mentioned when you're shooting above and below the center line, well, you have to take into consideration the parallax of objects because you're moving the camera up and down. So that's going to make everything move in relation, especially if, if you have a really wide lens. And so there are things that can be done. Even so, let me throw one more thing. <laughs> Kirk's staring at me like, oh my God, I've opened the floodgates. <laughs> So you can also do HDR panoramas. So imagine those 12 shots, but you've taken three frame bursts in each one, dark, light, and medium. And I know Lightroom, and I'm sure Photoshop can do this too, 
has a feature now that is an HDR panorama. So you throw all those images, so that's like you know, 36 images at Lightroom, and it will know that these are HDRs, so it'll, it'll make the HDR images and then stitch them all together. So it can be really cool. You can also, of course, end up with something completely terrible, yeah. but that's part of the fun too. And and you are going to have parallax and perspective issues, but you can correct those in software as well. Um, so I, I guess if you want to take a lot of time and experiment, this is something that's interesting. I'm going to do this um, on the weekend, I think, when the weather is cooler. I'm going to get my tripod out and I'm going to go down to the river. We're just 100 yards from the river. And I'm going to go down there and I'm going to do some panorama shots. And I don't know if they'll be ready for when this episode is published, but I'll see if I can do anything interesting. You can put them in the Facebook group. I can put them in the Facebook group. I can yes. do that. Okay. It's time for our snapshots. I hope you have something interesting. I do. It has nothing to do with panoramas or anything. Um, it's a book. And it's a book that I have a connection to. I did a tech edit on a book called Understanding Photography by Sean T. McHugh, published by No Starch Press. They contacted me and just wanted me to do a tech edit, make sure things were correct. A tech edit means that someone goes through, checks all the processes, does everything that's described in the book to make sure that there's no mistakes. Yeah. We all have tech editors when we do our books. They are invaluable. Yeah. And what's interesting about this book, it sort of covers all the basics of photography. It was a good project to work on, but I also thought it was interesting because it started out as a free ebook or maybe a, a I think it was a free ebook and then a paid ebook and the publisher then went to this author who I I've never met I should say and said, you know, hey, we want to turn this into a print book. The end result uh, it's gorgeous full color what you would expect from a photography book. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I have an app that was just updated, and we did an episode um, not long ago about different photo editors for the Mac, and I mentioned that I was particularly interested in Pixelmator Pro. And Pixelmator Pro just came out with an update, version 1.4, that uh, integrates the app as a photos extension. So in Apple Photos, you if you have Pixelmator Pro installed, you open a photo, you click the little circle button with the ellipsis in it uh, up in the top right of the toolbar. You select Pixelmator Pro and you see the entire Pixelmator Pro interface, everything. Now, usually when apps work as uh, an extension like this, you don't necessarily get all the features, um, but here you get everything. Now, what's even more important and what makes this now going to be my photo editor of choice together with photos is that when you save changes to a photo, you can save the history of the edits. Now, I've used Affinity Photo um, a number of times as an extension in the Photos app. And what it does is it generates a final picture that goes back into your photos library. And if you go back into Affinity Photo, you can't make changes to what you've changed. It's all frozen. It's Technically, it's a destructive edit. Uh, even though you can get your original photo back, you can't go back and say, hey, you know, I need to tweak the shadows just a bit more. Well, here you can. All the changes you make are saved individually. You can even use layers, which is not something I've looked at yet. Um, I literally got this a half an hour before we started recording. But all your changes are saved and you can go back and fix them. And I think this is just wonderful. As much as I like editing in Apple's Photos app, it does have some weaknesses. And Pixelmator Pro is like, I'm going to say it's the essential tool you need if you use Apple Photos to edit your photos. 
Before we wrap up, a few episodes ago, we talked to Nora Levine about her book, Pet Photography, published by Rocky Nook, and we promised that we would give away a couple of copies. I would like to congratulate Christian L. and Eric K., who both subscribe to the Photoactive newsletter. That's the way that you can be eligible to receive giveaways like this. They've been sent books, and we love doing this. We love being able to share things with our audience. So sign up, and if you've already signed up for the newsletter, and all we use the newsletter for really is for this and for announcing new episodes, we're not spamming you at all. If you've already signed up, you're already eligible for future updates. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast.